This is your metaphorist guidebook. The forest of mandatory innocence. Two fine children, hair thin as silk, pink-tongued as lambs, teeth white as cloud, frightened and betrayed by adult romance, set sail into the forest of mandatory innocence. They brought a loaf of crumbs to break off and scatter beneath the ancient oaks with their grabby hands, their old man's hats, their cigar smoke, their jokes about tender young thighs taste like chicken. The oaks watched the kids push open the witch's gate. The loaf of bread was ruined by rain. The oaks rubbed their limbs, said, oh boy. And the rats in the yard chased their tails, saying, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. All of nature feeds on loss, doesn't it? It had taken great effort and courage to find the witch's house. The two children entered the meager property that occupied an unexpected clearing in the forest. It looked less like a house than a candy store or a toy store or a circus, but it was none of these. Of course, of course, the toys had teeth, the candy forced sleep. The tied heroes were scooped from the steps and tucked into their pie dough bedding. Their heads drooped over pillows of caramelized onion. There was a familiar enactment of the spinster's white, upknotted hair unwound. One hair plucked and split like a zipper, the killing blade so honed. A crow laughing, a pot lid tapping, a crazy old woman with cats in the forest, in the story, the one everyone knows about the forest of mandatory innocence. Everyone knows. We keep sticking the little rascals there alone, adorable in their little rags. Love loves protecting. So why don't we write the tiny ones into the arms of loving protectors? Give them fresh sneakers, fresh butter, a horse. Why study their fluttering eyelids wringing our hands? And why curse that old forest hermit giving her only babies for meat? The children spent their young lives being innocent and shivering. In turn, they never became cruel. They sweetened and sweetened. They learned to behave. So hungry, still so well behaved. Nobody knows where they are except us. Nobody cares for these cold little ones. That ticking, that horrible ticking. Why don't we help them? The toadstools are red. The rapists want dinner. The old woman pulls off her old woman suit. The ticking oven timer begins to sound more familiar. The timer goes off. Oh, that's it. The ringing, it sounds like an old-fashioned phone. Angry, ringing and ringing, disturbing the neighbors. Ringing and ringing. But where is the phone? Oh, listen. It stopped. So peaceful, the silence. 
Tuck in your napkin. It's time to eat. Here's your roasted sacrifice, your tender nibble. Weep now. Weep into your hands. Salt your meal with your pure, pure tears and enjoy your difficulty swallowing. I will. Delicious. Pull up a chair. What children are for in the forest? Together our minds have made and remade. The forest of myth and stink. In the forest of myth and stink, there's a long line for the toilet. The bathroom is a series of slits in the ground. The potty slit area is a site of unmediated expression. It will become a library of material natural history, one of several located in the forest of myth and stink. The line is long. One might hold one's bowel movement for hours waiting for the go-ahead to scatobiographically amend the collection. All too often, the area may be sealed before an anxious visitor gets the chance to contribute. Long waits sometimes end in embarrassment. Therefore, hiring a wait later laborer to hold one's place in line is popular practice among the well-off. It is not acceptable to ask the worker to bribe his way to the head of the line. Still, an economy of illicit gifting has become rampant. Those whose patience and luck have paid off get the opportunity to make history. Pushing unassailable verity from their innermost selves, they excrete their uniquely crafted organic texts, rich in unmarred confession. Some teary young parents hold newborns over the slits and shake them until the infants release liquidy stools. Other guests don't stop at humble pee and poo. On the advice of their therapist, bulimics have begun vomiting into the openings triumphant. Other guests fling themselves wildly in order to release an even greater variety of natural secretions, while still others flip, flick ripe navel bacteria, dandruff, or vinegary spores from between their toes into the steamy, precious collection. Tears of gratitude slide down treats drip between thighs and find final rest in the ground. There's the 10 minute warning whistle, after which the area is cleared of guests. Next, muscular young technicians run in with buckets of fresh earth to pour over the raw data. Finally, the stew is left to ripen or cook for an unspecified length of time. Only after the materials have been stewed, reviewed, edited, and cataloged will the site be opened to the public for purposes of research and amusement. Maps to approved library sites are provided only after forest officials have tested them for contagions. Contaminated areas are sealed off, destroyed, and reforested. Forest officials worry that ill-intentioned characters might attempt to break into a site under an editorial review in order to add to or otherwise amend the raw data. Some may have even more terrorizing ends in mind. 
to lower the risk of such an invasion, cooking areas have been disguised as a regular wilderness ground, for instance, meadows or thickets impossible to locate without the help of a beast's keen sense of smell. Luckily, animals are naturally repelled by the sights. In the forest of myth and stink, serene meadows cover former shitholes. Who would suspect a pair of young thrill-seekers, untoned and unattractively dressed, of conspiring to use only the miniature pencils and yogurt spoons permitted in the forest, to dig blindly into the earth, searching for off-limits or contaminated data? Why would such girls waste their youthful hours employed in such thankless and illegal pursuits? What could they possibly expect to gain in unearthing off-limits excretions? Embryos curled up like fiddleheads, alien cells, two kinds of cum blended together, and a handful of goldfish bones. And regardless of their intentions, how unlikely that they would discover the precise location of this unintelligible hodgepodge under the very site upon which they chose to picnic? even more unlikely that they would find enough material unburned to attempt to translate even a few meaningful shreds. Forest officials consider this scenario low risk, given the unsavory nature of the task. of coin-op well-wishes. In the forest of coin-op well-wishes, a wisher whispers to the fish in his strange language, asking about his own death, tosses a bright new penny over his shoulder and crosses his fingers. It is lunchtime. The other lunch-hour wishers slump around the coin-op wells like earthquakes near or spies. Old-timer fishies with long curled whiskers wait for dimes. No looking, no telling your wish. In secret wish chambers, the well-dwellers say yes, say no, flip over and howl with circular mouths. Curiosity in the forest of coin-op well-wishes is mild, like going on a field trip to the sad cement tide pool stocked with old starfish, not a seafaring whaling adventure. It's a setup, so tame it's dangerous. Who knows when they're on the spot, a wish will come true. The fish girls return from their break, with their fish-flavored flakes all gobbled, their good and bad habits, their dim mates jobless and jittery back home waiting, rubbing their fins together. The fish girls with their fish women's duties, fish women's wishes, old ladies' morals, like after a war but before the rebuilding. Bright-scaled nihilism that looks like mirth, a sort of calm, unhinged decay, and a dread to hope for fresh water to gulp to let spill. And the wishers flip nickels with heavy confidence, their sense of unease, their curled-up love with nowhere to go, the way they wish to be watched while they touch their own bodies. What they sculpt with their hands will be smudged as peep-show windows. that wishing and watching and never a soul being perceived. 
except for that one unexpected time. And then the jolt, the thrill despair of recognition, shared habitat, round eye to round startled eye. So I'm Anna Joy Springer and Rachel Carnes, Tara Jane O'Neill as Foley artist who have come from many places in the U.S. to play with us today and we're on a little book tour but like some book tours uh, you may have been to in the past there isn't actually a book. There's a thing that represents the book. Well that's the, there's a CD, <laughs> yes. Woo! And there's a thing right there that you can buy with the CD for a reduced price if you're interested after the show, um, and you will get the book in the mail. And the CD and the uh, and the book thing patch thing uh, are $25 for the both of them. The CD is 10, and the book on its own is 20 on its own. So together you save five bucks if you're interested. Um, and I, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, I love this book. I think you will too. Is yeah. there a website they can If they can't get it today? Yeah, um, the book is called The Vicious Red Relic Love, and um, the CD is called Your Metaphorist Guidebook. It's the guide through the metaphorist. Um, and the, the website that you can go to is the publisher's website. You could get it on Amazon in a couple weeks, but you could also, and different places like that. Um, or you can get it just straight through the Jaded Ibis website. It's called Jaded Ibis. The Forest of Clashing Erotics. This is the dirty one. In the forest of clashing erotics, you can't tell who's winning, but you know it's a war. It's elemental. On one side, it's cloudy, dark, and dripping. On the other side, it's grassy, crackling, hot. Place your bets, grab a beer, the curtain's lifting. The show's a tacky, woodsy melodrama like gas station incense. Hear the dripping, the dank, yippy plopping, steady dull erosion, and the cliche tango of the crackling flame also snapping, spreading, softening, until the two, the dampness and the heat, are forced to exchange forms, and the droplets become gaseous, the flames liquid. It's divertingly unrealistic, sugary and catastrophic. It's impossible to turn away. Bambi jerks to a stop, sniffs the air. Flame shoots up a pine like panic. The sap pops, burning, and the smell of gin. There's the wild piano rollick of the snapping. Dripping in the hiss of newborn steam, gay party music from some cartoon time, hysterical, out-of-tune notes crashing down. History makes markings on the trees, burns yeses and noes, and I'm not sure, and it's too late in a series of signs in the bark, round black burns and patterns that look like mistakes. It's that kind of forest. 
the fucking war, the mating dance. You call it nature, I call it theater. Feel the lure of the overwrought lie. Pretend it's your own secretions on fire. Go into the mouth of the cave that's the cave of unbeing and find your worst self there and lick it. Extend a carrot on your palm, a sugar cube. Feel your tongued, unlovable self grow rubbery green, then burst into steam. There's fire multiplying like a gluttonous virus binging on cells. Hot moisture is breaking apart, floating, gathering forces. Fern leaves are curling, green snakes are bowing, red deer are dancing, young girls are screaming, fat bears are melting, a sad savior pops. Each battle comes and ends so fast, oh no, oh yes, and this is not the climax, no, this is just the beginning. The steam forms clouds that gather into character shapes. A father is born fully grown, all stout and played out. Somebody's God is watching too, slothful, perverse, small hand on round gut. A cloud mother deserts her cloud infant who is dressed as a clown with a clown's drunken nose. She gets into her car and drives deeper into the forest, bursting, cause and effect in a shower of shame. Also, famous cloud characters from outside the family make surprise guest appearances. In the air above the raging forest fire, there's Karl Marx looking harried, selling Jenny's jewels. And there's Indira Gandhi, Winnie Mandela, Jackie Kennedy, and Melinda Gates. All of them running away from the fire this way and that, slamming into each other like the Three Stooges. There's Andrea Dworkin, swapping sack with Larry Flint. Yes, there's regular porn, well-timed castration. There's dripping, there's devils, there's shopping. There's 12 years of gestalt therapy and a happy birthday party with a missing birthday girl. Everyone running around like doomed ants, waving their opinions around, taking out their tits, wagging their tails, and cheating toward the camera. There's precise technique and dirty cops and psychopharmaceutical reps. Plus that dripping, that enemy licking, that mushroomy funk. In the forest of clashing erotics, what makes you sick also makes your body stiffen like a unicorn's magical prick. And you puke while you come. And the shame makes you hard all over again, makes you drip. It's, it's one big pity party stocked with therapists and daddies. And it goes on for far too long, but there's still some fuel left, still some flesh on the bone. There's men looking on as the Doberman obediently tap dances for his blowjob, the circling men who eat thick, runny steaks and say yum. There's steam gorillas in torn jackets shooting Russian automatics and the fleeing, glistening rich doing their lopsided swing dance with the poor who one-handed slit throats indiscriminately, pearls scattering over steam marble floors. There's round-bellied famine babies and flies. And, oh, and there's the fucking therapist again. And, and storehouses of unused grain guarded by snipers. Plus, look who's arrived. It's, it's Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music. 
There's the Slits and Exene, Led Zeppelin and Stravinsky, and the reassuring guy from the insurance commercial. All of them writhing around to the war sounds along with a Bosch owl in its flowery eggshell costume, dancing on four human legs. There's close-ups, crackling, dripping, too many cocks to count, bobbing from long green stalks. Assholes wide enough to crawl into, perform mystical rituals there, assholes thick with oracles, competing prophecies echoing up the bowels, and clits with frantic gold wings, clits to trip over, clits that block out the sun and rain, clits with penises growing off them and cunt holes boring into them, fleshy steam tits and mouths and boots and pink ribbons and, and hairdos of television moms with their red-faced cookie tray innuendos and cock-sucking husbands. There's shit and the common exhortion for mommy. Fists are shaken at the enemy in triumph. Tears shed for Bambi. Real tears, plus the excellent come-hither slap. Masks and props zip around from limb to limb, combusting, damp, bursting into a cloud too heavy with significance to hold its form. Then it rains and the ash clings to everything. A little bird call echoes, lonely pan flute of the guilty. A pussy farts, a tongue recoils. The yeses and noes drop like seed and bounce. In the soundless afterward, nothing quivers, nothing yawns. There's no one unmaimed to measure the damage and tally the score so the war ends a draw. Both sides have been transfigured beyond recognition and that seems good enough. The war drudges sign off, return to their game of horseshoes in the same cave they used to escape the bomb and the IRS. Who cares who wins now that the money's been made? Like clockwork, new moisture all dirty gathers on the tip of a high heavy bow. The droplet reflects the first star. All those parents and wish figures, all those television nuns and 70s pool boys just keep mixing together and falling to the forest floor like husks, like so much unloved puppet mulch confetti. By morning, all the mental formations will begin fermenting, keeping the roots of surviving foliage moist and hidden. Layers of soft ash will entirely cover the forest floor, then tentative footprints. Eyes, hundreds, thousands of blinking eyes. The smell of old smoke and everyday fear. Applause, applause, applause.
the forest of mythopoesis. In the forest of mythopoesis, everything is our friend. It has its wants, its limited skills. Having woken up in this forest without provisions, we rely on our guidebook with its helpful guidelines for effective exchange, which will allow us to expand our pool of allies by teaching us to communicate with any object, material or abstract. And everything is, the guidebook reminds. We've come to expect a certain style of communication from our friends. We ask that the thundercloud speak in I statements. Instead, the dark cloud that's been hovering over our heads condenses menacingly. We respond, when you express yourself like that, I feel afraid. I don't know what you mean. The thundercloud takes the form of a giant bird with feathers black as pupils and shiny as water on top of white sand. Our guidebook reminds us that not all our friends speak in words. Confident now, we say, maybe you could draw a picture of what you need. And the giant scary raven opens its wings and blocks out the sun entirely. We ask for clarification. We feel frustrated. We turn to feelings, comma, frustration in the index. We find the page. It reads, be patient. Everything has a story to tell, but it's up to you to learn how to read. The forest goes dark as a cave and the rain pummels down upon us. We are scared. We want to go home. We are failing. We'd like to do it right. We want connection. We've always been so alone. We have no guide, just a secondhand guidebook, and it's from the early 80s. Trying our best to understand. Our mouths fill with water as we plead for clarification. The bird or cloud or violent rain enters our hair, our sweaters, our boots. It touches our skin. We consult our guidelines and recite slowly and patiently. I'm not saying that my way of talking is right and yours is wrong. I'm just saying that I'd like to be able to hear you. And when you accuse me like that, I shut down. We are craving a kind of lasting union we know we will not experience because it's fake or happens only after death. But we have become crafty in our isolation. We have read the guidebook thoroughly. We tried the emergency strategy of splitting ourselves into a party of two or more and communicating our needs effectively among ourselves. We say, that cloud friend was full of rage, or it wanted release. We feel ridiculous with our guidelines turning to pulp and running through our fingers like pudding. We find ourselves flinching, taken unaware by the slap of thunder, the leaping shadow, the sudden root that trips us. We fall hands first into blackberry bushes and our hands come back yelling redly at us. They've joined the forest in its strange way of speaking. Our own bodies are turning against us. We hold our hands up to the sky. We shout, I respect you. I want to meet you, friend. My friend, the enemy, my beloved. I want only that you should see me and care. 
The rain that's not even wet blinds and deafens us. Our smoldering hands fill with cool black feathers. The throbbing in our palms subsides. We put our fingers in our mouths and with our mouths full of fingers and rain feathers say, okay, I think I understand what you mean. But there's no way to be sure. We have learned that phenomena enacts itself unpredictably in the forest of mythopoesis. We believe we have learned how to read. We wonder how to transmit this wisdom to our friends everywhere. We feel driven to tell everyone what we've learned. At the very least, someone should update the guidebook with its out-of-date guidelines for effective exchange. The raid clowns abandon us, out come the sun. With our mascara running and our wool tights soaked, we feel lost again, there together alone. We mouth thou, biting into green bark. So these forests are running throughout the book. They're not the whole book. The book has other stories in it, um, but we pulled these metaphorists out for the CD. And this is the last. The Forest of Despot's Daughters. After giving her sire a fresh baby girl, the despot's daughter will escape, hiding in the thick forest. Not knowing others like her live there in the forest of despot's daughters, she will faint when she finds her mothers, sisters, and aunties grouped around a fire, twitching and moaning. Their eyes have hearts beating inside. They boil whatever scraggly weed they find and drink the soup to see what it does. Poison? Miscarriage? Ecstasy? Tasty? Obviously, from time to time during a slow period or election season, they will be gathered up and questioned by officials from outside the forest. Here's what the officials will ask. Have you ever avoided your duty as a daughter? Have you decided you're too good for us? Have you found something ugly attractive? Have you ever confided in outsiders? Familiar with interrogation tactics, having grown up with the despot, the daughters will lie skillfully. They will play the coquette. They will perform exquisite blowjobs. The officers will leave one way or another. During questioning, many daughters are accidentally drowned. The most influential despots have the officials lock their daughters in dark boxes and flown to an island no one can get to. They will be left there forever or until the despot retires. 
the drowned one's graves will go unmarked except for a warning. A thin crescent moon lying dead on its back, stuck in the dirt on a popsicle stick. The moon is a symbol of where the girls came from before they became despots' daughters. The crazy forest ladies are thought to have flown down from the moon, which is why they must be questioned and why some must be drowned. They are dangerous in both their knowledge and lies. In their indiscretion and passion, the despots' daughters consort with four-legged beasts, not to mention the ones with wings and fins. Truly, they'll fuck anything they can, give birth to flopping things with weird patches of hair, flat eyes, one tooth. They must not be allowed to mate. Mutants will plunder the earth. Of course, mate, they have already done. The despots' daughters are their own daughters, too. The forest is peopled by mutants who hit themselves and stink. They have inbred and become various. Species, texts, viruses curling sneakily through the bloodstream. They are tricky, the witches. They change shape. They fly to and from the moon, to and from the prison on the hidden island. They enjoy anarchy. They are bitter. They will not take their meds. To get rid of them entirely, one official calculates, they will have to feed the old crones thousands of poisons for thousands of years, then pump in gas, then chop the whole forest down. One must burn them to ash, put the ash in a box, send the box out to sea with the garbage. Let it float up on the shore of the hidden island and rot, so the ones in prison feel lucky to be warm and alive in their pens. Despots report that they are unworried by these freakish women who choose to hide away in the forest, shaking their cooking sticks, squeaking threads. The despots say that these blights will burn themselves out of their own accord before they can do any damage. They are weaponless, pathetic. They say that the girls, illiterate and unable to record their own lies, are harmless, so let them dance and boil their roots. Let them ride through the nights on the back of bright smears. What harm could they do but annoy, like spiders or beggars? It's not like they have something anyone wants after all anymore. The despots recite a prayer each night before bedding down. Don't look at the moon. It's ugly. Thank you. And next up is Eileen Miles. Hi. 
Um, I think none of, none of us, we don't have anybody to introduce us today, but um, I have an amazing blurb from Ray Amontrout on the back of my book. So I won't, I won't drag her up to the stage, I'll just quote her. So this is my book, Inferno, this copy's over here. Um, and I, I'm, I'm probably more bummed than Anna that her book is not here, because I wanted our books to be bumping together, but they will be in the future, and, and it was amazing to hear her and you guys. An incredible show. Um, so here's what Ray Amontrout said about Eileen Miles' Inferno. <laughs> I'm going to do a Ray imitation. I don't know. I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm, no. Inferno. <laughs> no. Inferno is a fugue state where life and poem are one, shameful and glorious. People sometimes say, I came from nothing, but that's not quite right. Miles shows us a place a poet might come from, did come from, working class, Catholic, female, queer. This narrative journey somehow takes place in a moment, every moment, the impossible present moment of poetry. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> um, so among the things that distinguish this book is that I wrote it here, so it's actually very exciting, and I feel like I've gone full circle to... So I'm going to read um, kind of from the beginning and then cut to the sort of middle... Listen to those motherfuckers at the bar. <laughs> woo, woo. Okay. But I'll, I, can, I can certainly read, since I used to teach you, I can certainly read the part that I couldn't read when I was trying to get a job. <laughs> My English professor's ass was so beautiful. It was perfect and full as she stood at the board writing some important word, reality or perhaps illusion. She opened the door. With each movement of her arms and her hand, delicately but forcefully inscribing, Dude, you can't laugh while I'm reading. Yeah. Hey, bartender! Take the laugh down. Take the laugh down. Okay. My English professor's ass was so beautiful. It was perfect and full as she stood at the board writing some important word. Reality or perhaps illusion. She opened the door. With each movement of her arms and her hand, delicately but forcefully inscribing the letters intended for her eyes, her ass shook ever so slightly. I had never learned from a woman with a body before. Something slow, horrible, and glowing was happening inside me. I stood on the foothills to heaven. She opened the door. There were a bunch of us in Eva Nelson's world literature class who had gone to Catholic school. Nobody was that different. 18-year-old kids who had grown up going to the blessing of the fleet, hooting and drinking beer, who went to Sacred Heart, who played against Our Lady. Hardly anyone in the class was really that different. Everyone, it seemed to me, lived in a roughly Catholic world. But those of us who knew nothing else, we were especially visible. When we had a thought, an exciting thought, we'd go, st, st, like a batch of little snakes. We meant, sister, sister, pay attention to me, call me now. Even Nelson had been teaching Pirandello. What we're really considering here, and now she faced us with her wonderful breasts. I know that a woman, when she's teaching school, begins to acquire a wardrobe that is slightly different from her daily self, how she exposes herself to the world. For instance, later in the semester, I went to a party at her house in Cambridge, and she sat on her couch in her husband's shirt. He was a handsome and distant young man named Gary. He was the Nelson, and she wore his shirt, and you really couldn't see her breast at all. But she had a collection of little jerseys, tan and peach, pale gold, and one was really white, I think. Generally, she dressed in sun tones, nothing cool, nothing blue, nothing like the eerie pots of the sky, but the hot and distant tones of the sun. Her breasts were in front of me. I was looking at her face, and I knew I was alive. 
On television, my favorite show is I had already begun to see how things could be slightly different, or utterly different, like a man could flip his daily quarter towards a newsstand that would land just because it jounced against all the other shiny coins and it landed on its edge. And all that day, the man could hear the thoughts of people in the street, his wife and his secretary, even his dog. It was crazy, and the next morning, he threw the coin again. Hey, said the regular Joe, who sold him the paper every day. Some guy did that yesterday, and I've been... Hey, you're that guy. The two guys' faces, really human faces, got big, and the music you never noticed till now, the music stopped playing. Hey, you're that guy. Yeah, it's me. There was something really covered about childhood. I think it was the nuns, with their pint of ice cream hats with the black, thick, flowing cloth that grazed the surface of the schoolyard and the oiled wood floors of my school. The nuns enclosed the world with sanity and God. The rules flowed up and down the calendar and around the clock and in the day, the sky, the world was rules. Then by God, the nuns said... Even Nelson had fantastic breasts that jounced in her explanation of modernity, of no way out, of vagueness, of the burden of insecurity and the possibility of something else, that this could be a dream, all of it. If the flip of a coin could release a torrent of multivocal glee, well, maybe it was a dream. We didn't know. We couldn't. This is our condition. The next book we will read, she said, pulling the shade on existentialism for the moment, is a much older text. It's part of the tradition, but it's a very modern book, quite political. She had this cute glint when she was being smart, which was always. She wasn't big smart. She didn't clob you with words. She just kind of befriended us like wolves, but she believed that wolves were good and could be taught too. <laughs> but she was from New York, was Jewish, and had been born intelligent. She was blonde. Are Jews blonde? I didn't know. I would learn so much more. Sometimes her jersey was nearly green, but that was as dark as it got. Dante really had no other way to talk about his time except in a poem. The Inferno is a heavily coded poem. It's not even about censorship, but something else. It was an age of not even satire, but allegory. His beliefs were fixed in the structure of his poem like the windows of a church. Her eyes twinkled. Oh, my God. And I'll give you a clue. She paused while she spoke so that each phrase could catch up on our thought. It wasn't like she thought we were dumb. I could feel her eyes meeting mine. You're not dumb, Eileen. She knew me, and this is the best moment of all. Before any of the incidents that would change my life irrevocably, I felt she already knew me. I sat in her class on Columbus Ave in the Salada Tea Building in Boston on a Tuesday afternoon, and I was seen before words, before anything. She would pause and let the words catch up. We had time. I want each of you to write an inferno. The class groaned. It's just his time. This is yours. She smiled. It was ours now. I would show her my hell. Getting home was the hardest thing. I lived in Arlington. Actually, no, I'm going to stop. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to leap forward. So that's, this is sort of like a becoming a poet story. So it leaps forward to New York about 10 years later or something. So that's where we go next. So this is, this is called the, um, the poetry field. Was that funny? It was... Because I have a part in here about poets drinking and, and how they're like, they can't look straight at people because it's like being executed. So you, have, you get really good professionally at this little, you know, thing. My stepbrother had given my number to this young woman. She called one afternoon when I was standing in my kitchen on Thompson Street. I was broke as usual, and I think I hadn't had anything to eat that day, maybe a roll. And I had a couple of cigarettes left and definitely no current plan. I was beginning to sweat. Just a light sweat from moderate hunger and then some feeling. Just a feeling I might not even go out, even though I had a big problem, kind of big. So obviously, I picked up the phone when it rang. 
I met your brother Eddie at O'Henry's in Greenwich Village, he added, as if, as if that was supposed to impress me. He's my stepbrother, I said. The girl never even hesitated. O'Henry's was right. I had drinks with him there at least once. It was expensive, and though I always pitched at the candy bar, I knew it was supposed to be writerly. My stepbrother was an advertising man, and according to my family, a real writer, not a deluded poet like me. Uh-huh, I said, holding the phone, looking around at the light in the kitchen, the day, and the thin prospects it held. He said, you might be able to tell me about opportunities in the poetry field? <laughs> the poetry field, I thought, not even bothering to pull the phone away from my ear like they do on TV and look at it in disbelief. <laughs> poetry field, that's good. I wonder if my stepbrother was screwing around. She sounds nuts. So I was wondering if he'd want to meet for a drink. I'm new in town. Do you know this bar on Waverly Place? It's downstairs. It's very cute. I think autistic types hang out there. The locale, I filled her in. Yeah, that's not far from me. So do you want to meet? Four's good, I said, hanging up and looking around. Out my window were hundreds of other windows of people looking in or not. I always thought of rear window. One morning, I'm not sure this had happened yet, but it will, it will give you a feeling about the life. I had just gotten up pretty late. Mostly in those days, I was waitressing. I was waitressing and I was straight, but I thought about girls. Usually I'd close the place and I'd move on to another place with whoever was around. I like being with an anonymous crowd I can smother myself in. I looked like anyone else and I'd part of a generation that was just fine with that. I had long hair, not bad looking, I'd like to point out. But one morning I was lying on my mattress and the phone rang. It was on the floor across the room. I stumbled over records and books. On the third ring I picked it up. Is this Eileen Miles? Uh, yes. I was naked. I had been up drinking late last night. I felt fat. Do you live at 105 Thompson Street? I do. Maybe it was a contest. Well, we have a gun trained on you right now. Drop to the floor. And I did. Now I'd like you to... At that moment, I realized I could just hang up, and I did. When the girl called, I was standing in front of all those windows in my home. I put on a white shirt. I looked in the mirror. I dug my hands in my pocket, and I came up with 37 cents. I brought a bag so it looked like I had something. I threw in a book. I wore no socks. It was early fall, an unemployable time. She sounds young, pathetic, I thought, but she probably has money. Maybe she'll buy me a drink. I just got to move, I thought, closing the door. And she did. She bought me a shot of Hennessy's. I got you Hennessy's, she grinned, as if she had done a really good thing and she knew how to live. She was young. If I was 25, she was 21 or 22. From Sioux Falls, she said. She looked like that. She had long, straight, reddish-blonde hair, lots of light freckles. She had a little flat twang in her voice. She ran fast. She had that kind of twittering energy. You couldn't tell if she was smart, but she was accomplished. She could get around, but she wasn't hip. And she wanted to be a writer. She told me about going to, you know, like High Court Brace and Jovanovich with her notebook, getting past reception and marching in on some editor at the top of some tall building and getting them to look at her notebook. She was so nuts, but it seemed sort of great. What do they do, I asked. They were really nice, she said, so they said I should meet some other writers. Maybe I should go downtown. So, oh, Henry, she shrugged, smiling. Oh, that was smart. I felt behind this girl exchange we were having was a big, huge depression. A mountain of despair was watching her coming at me, her strange, manic hopes, and her stupid notebook creeping closer and closer by the moment. I was waiting for her to say, do you want to hear my poem? And then I would sit there, sipping my Hennessy's, listening to her obvious poetry, and all because I was broke. But if I paid attention, really paid attention, maybe I could ignore the mountain of sadness, and she might entertain and distract me, and I would think, this is life. The romance and the sadness, I am in it now. I did do that, which is what happened. 
Do you need work, she said. We were on about the third drink now. She kept pulling out 20s. I saw a little Benjamin Franklin face peeking behind that in her snap purse, so she had a source of dough. But she slipped her money out, careful, like a kid, a smart, poor kid. Over our heads were brown paper bags and lamps that made a mellow glow in the room, like you got a hit of warmth that helped you see. I was feeling better from the booze. Do you want a Coke, too? She drank Coke with her booze. This is good, I said, sipping it. I was out of cigarettes. Here, smoke mine, she smiled conspiratorially. She was a real girly girl. She had this air of country, but she also reminded me of a friend in grade school, you know, for like about two weeks like I was then. Kathy Houston, for instance, was very pretty, but she always thought of the best games, but mostly she was dedicated to not getting caught. So when our laughing at church got the nun's attention, I was out. Kathy was over with me. I made her red. Excitement, which is some kind of door. This girl explained to me that she'd lost all her luggage in Grand Central when she got to town. You came on a train. No, I came on a bus. I'm thinking Grand Central doesn't have buses. Her stuff was in a locker, and she somehow got robbed, and she had nothing, and she came here all alone, and she wandered around for about an hour, and she decided to get a drink with her last seven bucks, so she went into the Carlisle, and she sat down at, a bar, at the bar in front of the TV. This guy who was sitting next to her struck up a conversation, and he was really nice, and he offered to take her to dinner. Turns out he was just in town for a couple of nights, and she wound up staying with him in his hotel, and they had such a good time. That was actually when she went to the publishing companies. He was off doing his work during the day, and she decided maybe she could do something too. It's a long road becoming a writer. I'm not so sure I have the time, she confessed, stubbing out her Benson and Hedges. I know, it's hard, I said. I didn't want to think about this. Now she was making me nervous. She said the nice guy from the hotel bar went home to California or someplace after his work was done, but he did something funny. He gave me $450. You're kidding, I gasped. For what? That was exactly my question, she whooped. She really did whoop, and she knocked over her drink then. <laughs> Maybe we should go. Yeah, I nodded. A skinny, really hip-looking girl in a dancer top put the check down on a brown plastic tray. We were a couple of losers. My pleasure, the girl said, when Rita plopped a couple more 20s down. Are you hungry? Her name was Rita. When she said, my name is Rita, she drooped her long hand towards me like she'd been in business 30 years. We're walking down A Street now. He told me I might need it, she said, meaning the money I asked. And I did need it, she said. Of course, I shrugged. So I got my own room in the car while that night. Next day, I returned to the bar. Another guy sat down. Blonde with a crew cut, she explained. He was just a guy from New Jersey, but he preferred to spend his work nights in the city. I told him I just arrived. He said, let me show you around. He brought me to the local. Locale, I corrected. She just looked in my eyes. She had very pale blue eyes. And all they said was, you are so completely missing the point. I'm sure I was. She didn't care about the poetry field at all. The second guy wanted to fuck all night. That's cool, she interjected, but in the morning he said, you're a hooker, right? I just lost my bag, she explained to me like I was him. And what are you going to do about that, he said, and he shoves 250 in my hand. I put it in my purse, she shrugs. The bartender, who was a very nice man, told me that if I stayed around much longer, I would probably get in trouble. I told the people at the front desk, you're my niece. He smiled, putting another drink in front of her, and they don't believe me. I checked into the Warwick, she said. It's not as nice. The Carlisle was old style. By now I'm thinking, she's as bad as me. The man staying there, a very nice man, she nods to me, has a business associate who's coming to town tomorrow. An Italian, well, actually two Italians. Italians, handbag salesman. And I have a date with both of them, but I have to bring a friend. She smiled sweetly at me, just with her lips, just a little tug of sweetness occurred, almost a hum. She was a little crazy, but God, she was good. I think she wants me to be a whore. 
It's just a date, she said. I don't know anyone. We don't have to do anything. These guys, they're just lonely. We can have dinner. You, you can see for yourself. Go to a discotheque. But I don't want to meet them alone. Now she looked a little scared and desperate. She was working me. When your brother, my stepbrother, when your stepbrother, forgive me, told me he had a sister who lived downtown who was a poet, you just figured I was broke. Well, yeah. <laughs> so one more teeny part. I'm gonna, so what happens is the whole kind of poet-prostitute story goes for about 100 pages. <laughs> and in that way, I tell the whole narrative of my young years in New York. Weirdly, this book ends exactly at the moment when I came to San Diego to teach, which is like a very easy way to explain this book. It's like... <laughs> it's, what is it, like AD and BC and UC, SD or something? <laughs> um... So now they're in midtown Manhattan. It's not that much longer, but it's, it seems like 100 pages because it is. Um, where the hell is it? My apologies to the bartender. He's a really nice guy. I shouldn't have been shocked with him. <laughs> where the fuck is it? Okay, here it is. Okay, so... <laughs> we went to the hotel. She had to borrow her cab, her subway fare. This this character is so poor. We went to the hotel. By now, I'd succumbed to only walking. Oh, they're on the date. They're on the date. By now, I'd succumbing succumbed to only walking hand in hand. We had moved around each other all evening. Oh, his name is Atilio Viola. There's a guy named Freddie. There's a another guy named Atilio. We went to the hotel. By now I'd succumbed to only walking hand in hand. We'd moved around each other all evening, Atilio and I. His green jacket shone and flickered. Constantly I looked at his shoes, pointed, and I have to admit a little scuffed. I stood with him and Rita and Freddie in front of a row of brown elevators as if it were a rocket launch. Everybody here knows what's going on except me. I mean, I could say no to the story right now, or I can obediently go along with it, and when the door opens, walk on. It was an unbearable wait with a substantial amount of human traffic in the yellow lobby. Rita was probably waiting to see if I would bolt. At this moment, we were standing in a battle of nerves. She had probably already set her terms. I was the only outsider on this tour. I could say, I think... I just want to say to any young writers, you don't have to become a prostitute to have a career. This is just one path. Um, it was an unbearable wait with a substantial amount of human traffic in the yellow lobby Rita was probably waiting to see if I would bolt this moment we were standing in a battle of nerves she had probably already said her terms I was the only outsider on the tour I could say I think I need to go home Sorry, thank you for the lovely evening, all the drinks and the powdered scrambled eggs. I guess it was a bagel, the fakest bagel I've ever had in my life. The four elevators, a rusty reddish brown, hung there like stone. I guess I'm just going to get on. No one seems to be saying anything. I guess they all think I'm just going to go up. I'm turning into a whore right at this moment. I'm just turning into a whore. The doors opened and we got on. We rode up in silence and Rita smiled. I can't believe my stepbrother got me into this shit. Will I ever tell him? He will never know. The elevator stopped. I'm going to meet my stepbrother pretty soon and give him this book. It's going to be weird. Um, I keep interrupting. 
Will I ever tell him? He will never know. The elevator stopped at the 16th floor. We're getting off here. See you guys. Rita leaned in and pecked me a kiss because we were friends. Whoop, the doors closed. Atelier leaned back against the elevator. Oh, my God, he's ignoring me. He looked at me out of the corner of his eyes. It is okay, he asked kindly. I really think he did. I said, yes. All hotel rooms gray, or maybe it's mauve. It's a pale little color. And something is gold, maybe the drapes, and tall, thunderous lampshades on the light to remember this is home. Big public globes of peace. You'd like another drink? He leaned back on the bed. By now he had thrown his jacket on the chair, loosened his tie. I said, yes. He lifted a bottle of vermouth from the night table. You like, he asked. Sure, I said, just like an American. He poured it in my glass and put his hand on my head, and soon the lights went out. The first time I ever kissed was outside in a park in my town, and it was in the fall, and the kid was about a year younger than me and kind of cute, but he had pimples, and I generally felt that his family was poor. <laughs> he came from a whole family of brothers, and many of the girls who were in my gang, mostly sisters, and then Franny, the girl next door, and they were all... All these girls were st went steady with all these boys, and that simply meant that you kissed and some small piece of metal, a tie clip, a ring was exchanged. And all of this was alien to me, but I was part of this group, and I wanted what had happened to them to happen to me. So when it was pointed out that I could have Wayne, I took him so that I could have the experiences I seemed to need to be a girl in my gang. I mention all of this to describe the kiss, my first. My first I could own as mine. He meant to kiss me and would do it again. But why? Probably also because he could. Our little lips met to no purchase. I mean, no revulsion or storm or revelation. Just warm, dry, adolescent skin in the cold fall, fall just before supper. A couple of duck bills smack. He shoved something at me, which did make me ill, perhaps a tie clip, but it meant that the deal was sealed. And I got out of it as quickly as I could, going steady with something I had done with Wayne. Oh, yeah. Atelier was kissing any girl on the bed, and it seemed that this would pass. The non-event was of sex with an adult stranger putting his soft, drunken tongue in my mouth. Somehow we got our clothes off, and I actually think I got under the covers. In retrospect, it was like married sex. The, the ribbony silk that trimmed the blanket and the hard dryness of the clean hotel sheets were my friends. His hand moved aimlessly along my body, touching my ordinary female chest. My breasts weren't large, but I had never wished that they were. I had no sympathy for his possible disappointment. I was the body he'd been paying for all night. It wasn't like he bought me. He rented me. Each drink was the accomplishment of another 40 minutes or an hour, which I agreed to stay with him, who was perhaps 11 years older than me and probably married. I think I asked him if he was, and he said he was married. I asked him if he had any kids, and he said yes. I think he went down on me. I sort of remember it. My legs being boringly open on that bed. It was really a different experience of being a body that I had maybe overtly agreed with Rita to do all this and silently conspired with Attilio, but mostly it reminded me of Wayne and years later of performing, making out in a movie, the smells of a woman I didn't want. Not one I didn't want either, but like Wayne, we were inscribed together on a piece of graph paper like ducks drawn, drawn on a tablecloth for later embroidering, which was, I guess, now. In the dark, the dark of that bed, I think of gray, more colorless than childhood, we actually did it. I think of his penis, which I believe was small, but I thought of as Italian, kind of shapely and uncircumcised. Is that possible? I've seen hundreds of penises, but I still don't think I can tell the difference. But that makes me more of a lesbian than a whore. <laughs> or someone congenitally disinterested in stepping up to the mic. He pushed his not-so-hard part into my not-so-defined part. 
I thought of this sexual experience occurring in folds. It was like sex between two flowers, not beautiful but not unfriendly, occurring in slow, weighty, cascading silk, which was our lethargic, drunken, inevitable sex. We grunted and plunged, I think, not for long. I think I allowed, even enjoyed, in that I was a witness to my body taking part in an animal unknown, having made a deal as if I were my father, and I had sold my daughter in exchange for some furs and a bottle of wine. I wasn't so much in season as drifting through the yard. When the thought grew bright in my father's head, why not her? I am that one. I was in bed alone. You know how you can kick your legs to the left and the right in a huge hotel bed, but you can still feel a little lost? I looked at the clock, 5.30. It was summer, so it was already light. Now there was blue, a big square of pale morning blue, and Atelio Viola was sitting in a chair in front of it having a cigarette. There was a balcony, and he had the door shoved open, and his smoke was blowing out. He didn't know if I was watching him, and he didn't care. His leg was folded over his knee. You could tell he just enjoyed being a man in a body. Probably went to the beach with his family. Maybe he had a girlfriend in Italy. Sort of a cream-colored guy. He was just sitting there smoking in his cotton briefs and a sleeveless t-shirt, a thin gold chain around his neck with a tiny gold medal. Not quite getting old, but he will. Soft, rounded shoulders. He's looking out at New York. What a great city with its plunging skyline and secret roofs and signs and cars already on their way. I suspected it was a melancholy moment for him. We had all drunk a lot. He probably does this all the time, picks up girls in strange cities and pays for them. He said he's going to London next. I looked at him and I thought about that, the paying, and I couldn't imagine how I would bring it around. Hey, can you give me, I don't know, 300 bucks would feel right? Rent and some stuff? What am I worth? But he just looked sad looking out over this city that wasn't his. He was northern Italian. It was so far away. He looked back at me for a moment and gave me a little pirate grin. Hey, he said in his quick Italian, and then he returned to his smoke. I started to get dressed. I didn't ask for it. I said, hey and got dressed. I left him in the window just like that. I left him alone with his view. Thank you. Normally at this point in the new writing series, we have a moment for questions. Um, would, you, would you like to answer questions or should we just dig into cake? Would you like to answer questions? Um, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, come up. up you guys want to come? Question. Questions? You can ask us anything. Yeah, anything. And we're not come, required to answer. Yeah, or we, we might lie. Come. Come answer questions, if there are any. Go back to your pit. <laughs> you had a question, Lundy? <laughs> no, no, no. That was the that was the point of the end. That it was like sh the 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 Eileen character. A, couldn't get up the courage to ask for money, and B, I think that's when she became a writer, because she decided. She decided she didn't need his fucking money. That it was sort of like I left him alone with his view, and my view is the long one because I'm still looking back there. So in a way, it's—I mean, anybody who did sex work said, "Oh, what a loser," <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I—I I feel like it was a weird, bizarre. It was a masochistic way, I think, of topping the customer and saying, nah, "I did that because I needed that story." And weirdly, and, and weirdly, I just have to say, when I first 
became a, well, maybe I won't tell that. Yes, I will. Um, when I first became a college professor here and I um, went back to New York to do a search for hiring somebody, we were, um, we were in a hotel on a search committee and suddenly I thought, oh my God, it's the same hotel. <laughs> Which is how I remembered this story and wrote it. So it was like another gift of UCSD. <laughs> it was like... Hot dog poop and poetry, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> I think you made us better say something first. <laughs> hot dog poop and Oh, no, no, you mean, oh, hot dog, I was like, hot dog poop. I was like, what is that? And you mean, dog, it was about, actually, I will, I will say, no, it's, it's about having a dog, anybody who's had a dog, you know that you're walking along, having this lovely evening, and you have a purpose, which is the dog is about, to, you want the dog to poop, and then the dog stops, and you, ha you stand there in this kind of incredible stillness, in this beautiful, profound moment, which if you've, if you've had a dog, you do this all over the world and all the places where you've been with the dog, and it winds up, like the only thing I can compare it to is that when I was, I had a friend, a poet named James Schuyler, who was really great, and I'd take walks with him around Manhattan, and we'd be walking along, and suddenly he would stop. And then he would say something beautiful about a building that we were looking at, and I was like, this is so amazing. But in fact, he had had um, um, diabetes and had lost some toes, and so his foot was hurting. And so the part of the rhythm of walking with him was at a certain point his toe pain would be so bad that he would stop. And then to cover it, he would start talking about a building, you know. So it was the same, it was very similar to the poop pause, which was, I guess it's the body. The body makes you stop at certain points and then you kind of go to a different level of abstraction. So. <laughs> Yay poop. coordination of the music with your, your piece. Um, was that rehearsed? Was it improvised? Was it, I'm sure it was rehearsed. Yeah, it's, um, so, so the book was, um, I finished the book a couple years ago, and um, it's been, you know, looking for a home and finding a home and all that in these two years. Um, and uh, I uh, knew Rachel from playing in bands years ago. She's like one of my favorite musicians in the whole world ever. Um, and so we were Facebook friends. And so I just asked, would you be interested in doing some music for the sections of the book? Um, and so I recorded them in Los Angeles and then sent the recordings. And she said, oh, I have this amazing friend, Tara Jane. I think she can handle this. And, um, and so then they recorded the music and sent it back to me. And um, Tara Jane put the, um, did the producing of it on the CDs. And then a couple days ago, we started rehearsing in my garage, which to the, to the great um, dismay of my neighbors, <laughs> <laughs> who know all about things they didn't know about before. <laughs> Me, their nice lesbian neighbor with the garden. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hi, uh, question for I can imagine how like New York would have informed your writing, but 
Did you feel like San Diego left any kind of an imprint on your work or? Oh, totally. I think it's maybe not the next book, the book after that. I mean, the whole world of, of teaching and institutions and what that is, is, is so, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, huge. And I think, you know, also there's a sad, the thing about the place where you're not is always interesting. Like I wrote a book that was almost entire, I never thought of this as a book about New York, but the fact that I was living in San Diego five, for five years meant that New York became this sort of utopian space. And, and, and kind of imaginary. And even though I was flying back constantly, it was not a real place. And so it's easier to write about the place that's not real. So I would think that I would, you know, it would be easier not living here. To Yeah, yes. So the answer is the, the other place. Because it seems to me it's either time or, or space that you need a kind of separation for writing. And, and, and for me, one or the other will do, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't think I have a voice. I think I have. Um, I have a way of working with voices that inhabit me, um, and sort of calling on and mutilating them. Um, but, but I'm hoping that every piece has a voice, and that the voice come uh, a voice or multiple voices, depending on whether it's a you know a solo or a chorus or an orchestral sort of piece or a fugue or whatever. Um, yeah, so I think the idea of the solo, the, the single authorial voice doesn't really appeal to me or make sense to me exactly just because I feel like even my mind is just so made up of all the voices that have shaped it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I feel like um, I feel like I have a voice but this, this it's the thing you're hearing right now literally, and I feel like I'm very sort of either material about it pretty literally, like the idea of a voice just seems to me to not exist. But before I ever wrote, I was really interested in recording and, I mean, I, you know, the things I thought about when I first got out of college was like being a DJ and, um, and just, just literally tape records. It was sort of like the 60s and the 70s and there was a whole Andy Warhol going to parties with a recorder, waking up and having long conversation with friends and recording them and there was a whole kind of very literal sense and also there was a whole thing about... Um, journalism and documentary stuff in the 70s and 80s, they were all part of what was going on in the air when I was learning to write. So when I first started writing poems, it was kind of like I, I thought of them as recordings. Like I thought, since I couldn't get it together to, to use tape recorders or film, you know, or any of those other media, and, and I really loved, you know, a lot of singer, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, all the singer-songwriters of that era were, were, were to me, to my mind, kind of poets, and their, their lyrics were very... And so when I, thought, when I first started doing, like, open readings in New York, I thought of myself as a singer without a band. I just never got around to getting the band, you know. And, but, but, but every time I write something, Thing on paper, and I still feel this way. I feel like there's a kind of listening going on, and the recording happens to be happening in the most old-fashioned method there is next to next to memory, you know. So that it's very. Whenever I, anyone talks about the voice, I think, well, yeah, but it's it's this, and I think it's taken me a long time to admit that I think of myself as a performer, and that I think of but I think of writing as a, perf a performative act, which is improvisational. And it sort of it could have been this way, it could have been that way, but it happened to be this way, and since it's on the page now, I'll start working with this version, 
you know, and, and editing, you know, so it's, it's literally, yeah, yeah, it's literally a thing. You know, I do think that there's no, there's not a voice, but there's a spirit, and there's like, it's not of language, it's like of some other vibe, magically, <laughs> it's like that, you <laughs> know, it's, um, there's like, there's, there's definitely a similar spirit that runs through my texts, and it's, there's a fierceness, and there's a sorrow, and there's like a perversity, and a he- twisted humor, and sort of this kind of like, if there were, if there was some color for that, it would often be in all my works. Yeah. I want to add too, and I also think it's so interesting that sort of like as you, you write and you read and do readings, and I think a lot of us, I think most writers make more money doing readings than they do from publishing their work. And so there's a way in which it's weird that there's a tendency to disavow this is our art and our practice, even though this is what we kind of do all the time. And, and I think that what's weird is that you actually over time learn to perform your own texts. Sometimes the text is is almost the, who you will be. You know, it's a little like that. That there's that famous joke about Picasso did a painting of Gertrude Stein, and she's like, "I don't look that way, Picasso." And he said, "Yeah, but you will." You know, and I feel like my books, the books sound like something. I'm yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I wouldn't listen to it and read it at the same time. Yeah, I would have them be separate experiences, um, but I couldn't decide what order to tell you to do them in. Would you guys listen to it and read it at the same time? Like the fourth? No. Yeah, I don't think so. It would, it, you wouldn't, it would be too much. <laughs> it's already a lot. Yeah. Oversaturation. Final? Okay, thank you guys. Um, okay, clap for this. You guys are a great crowd. Thank you, Ellen. Congratulations. The last, last bit is, um, I also wanted this to be a little recognition of the work of Sarah Bynum for the last several years. Who, she's run the MFA program, and she's... Just been a, a fine, amazing, most wonderful, wonderful colleague, friend, n- instructor, and admin. Um, and so we have um, a little cake that you can share uh, and eat and think of how sweet she is. Pathologically sweet. <laughs> and then if you're gluten free, there's a little meringue. Anyway, so thank you. We'll be cutting it in a minute. Thank you all. <laughs>